Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in this episode, I am speaking to Professor Joan Williams. Joan is the Sullivan Professor of Law, uh, the Hastings Foundation Chair and Founding Director of the Center for Work-Life Balance at the University of California, Hastings. Uh, Joan was last on the podcast in August 2021, talking about her book, The White Working Class. And today she's here to speak about her new initiative called The Diploma Divide, aiming to reframe our understanding of what makes far-right politics so successful in the United States in recent years, um, and also her take on what to do about it. Hello, Professor Joan Williams. Delighted to be here, Nicholas. Uh, yeah, I'm delighted you're back. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, I suppose. It's great to have you on again. You recently made me aware of your new website and initiative called DiplomaDivide.org. What is this all about? What is the Diploma Divide? Um, it's about bridging the Diploma Divide in American politics. Non-college voters in the U.S., vote very differently than college grads do. Mm -hmm. This is um, by far the most pronounced among white people where there's a huge differential in report for the far right among non-college versus college voters. But Trump actually, uh, Trump's support in 2020 actually increased among non-college voters of color. So, and it's particularly strong, of course, among Latinx mm -hmm. without college degrees. And so social class divisions definitely aren't the only thing that's divide, dividing American politics, but they're a very important factor driving American politics. And um, in the U.S., we're not too great about acknowledging the influence of social class. And so people have found it hard to bend their minds around the class dynamic that's shaping so many issues in American politics. And this um, initiative is designed to help them do that. I understand. All right. Of course, the last time you were here, um, we were discussing your work around your book, uh, The White Working Class, which was um, effectively uh, all about your argument, how uh, American politics constantly overlooks the importance of class when it comes to um, all kinds of outcomes. Um, and I mean, obviously, that argument is really strong here in um, what you're suggesting as uh, the diploma divide. Um, let, let's maybe stay, take a step back and ask, um, what is it exactly about the current state of American politics that you are worried about here? You immediately get to this topic of support for the far right. What exactly does that look like? I think, you know, most people probably have some sort of idea uh, what it is that you're talking about here exactly, what exactly the threat is. But um, yeah, I'd like you to um, maybe explain a little bit how you understand it and uh, why you think it requires attention and, and action, I'm assuming. 
Well, I mean, this uh, everybody's conjoined about this. They call mm. it different things. Um, right. Often the understanding and gaining control of the class dynamic in American politics is important because of rapid increases in extreme polarization, mm -hmm. um, because of, at this point, threats to democracy. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, when I wrote the original article in Harvard Business Review, the one that went viral with like, I think it has like 3.7 million reads now, what so many people don't understand about the US working class, I actually ended it saying that if we don't get the situation under control, we're going to see a lot more Timothy McVeigh's, the mm -hmm. Oklahoma City bomber. And they actually made me take it out. They mm. said that was, that was alarmist and that there was no indication of that. Uh, but that's what we've seen. Right. Uh, we're seeing is, and it's really shocking to, you know, an American born in the 1950s, we're really on a short road to potentially a short road to fascism. Right. So that you would say being um, the main threat here, the extreme polarization, the uh, strong threat to American democracy, particularly from the far right, which I would say has sort of different permutations, right? You can call it Trumpism, you can call it, um, you know, white nationalism, you can call it whatever you want. But I suppose the importance thing to consider here is that the Republican Party has become a pretty open embracer, if you will, of those kinds of political forces and is certainly uh, not shying away from utilizing support from from those kinds of circles in all kinds of ways. Why is this about college degrees? What, what's the tie in here? Like, how is this phenomenon connected yeah. to that? College degrees is and it's just one, one the easiest proxy. For right. Uh, class is very complicated. But what's really going on in American politics now um, is that um, Americans without college degrees have really gotten screwed economically mm -hmm. in, since 1980. Um, all of the research on the rapid growth in income um, inequalities is relevant here. Ross Chetty's group's work that Virtually all Americans used to do better than their parents, but only half of those born in the 1980s will. Mm -hmm. um, David O'Tour's work showing that uh, areas of the country that have experienced the kind of China shock, um, loss of manufacturing jobs due to competition from China, um, voted strongly towards strongly for Trump. I mean, there's it's it's we're in this ironic situation where progressives are really really happy to talk about how terrible the income. Um, it seems unfortunately progressives are often super happy to talk about and decry the income the increase in income inequality, but then deny its impact on American politics, and say what's going on in American politics isn't about economics, it's about race. And that's really a false dichotomy. It is about race, it's also about economics. Because what the far right has learned to do is to take that economic anxiety, that economic, that economic bereavement, and very deftly sculpt it into racism, sculpt it into culture wars, um, and sculpted into masculinity contests where masculine anxieties are being very deftly harnessed 
to drive the country to the far right. Mm. And it's so ironic because, you know, I'm, as, you know, I'm just such a classic progressive. I'm a San Francisco progressive. I'm a caricature. I mean, I've worked on race, class, and gender for 40 years um, and moved to San Francisco for a good cultural fit away from mm. Washington. So the left, like, we like to think that we understand the dynamics of race, class, and gender, but you know who really understands them? The far right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, not everyone agrees with this assessment, right? That um, this far right phenomenon that the US is experiencing is primarily or even significantly economically determined. And as you say, right, a lot of um, progressive, you know, activists or political uh, operatives or whatever you want to call it, really stress the importance of other factors. Um, so if I can just talk about that. Yeah, you please. Hey, wonky for a minute. What? Um, first of all, this is a false dichotomy. Right. You know, if you have economic anxiety being translated into racism, then both race and class are involved. Um, but um, what the, the some of the studies, there were a couple studies in 2018 that used the racial resentment scale mm -hmm. and found that the racial resentment scale better predicted Trump voting than did various measures of economics. Right. Now, one of the problems was that the measures of economics were not the right measures of economics. The easiest to explain without getting too wonky is that one influential study um, used economics of voters under 50, earning under 50,000 and over 50,000. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the group that swung so hard for Trump is that fragile middle. So what you've done is you've um, split the middle class, middle in the middle, below 50,000, above 50,000. What you should be looking at is the middle. Mm. So that's just one example of a, a measure of economics that erases the effect of social class differentials. But the other thing is that the it's, it makes total sense that the racial resentment scale, even, I mean, it, it that also, this has been widely criticized and widely attacked, but let's just bracket that for a minute, that the racial resentment scale would better predict um, votes for Trump, because that just means they were listening to what he said. Mm. He, he was offering a package of, you've gotten screwed economically, this is why, because you're white. Mm. If people believe that, of course they were more likely to vote for Trump. But the left's move should be to say, yes, you've gotten screwed economically, but it's not because you're white, it's because you're working class. Instead, what the left often does is um, uh, plays into Trump's hands by saying, shame on you, you're motivated by racism, you're racists, you're beneath our notice. That's just kind of a, I mean, some of them are. And I mean, one study uh, found five kinds of Trump voters and a very important, about 20%, they really, racism was really central to their identities. But another 20%, like the first group, was focused on, was very liberal economically, because this first group was very liberal economically. They were just yeah. like racist. But the second group is equally liberal economically, but they are not deeply identified. I mean, they're, for example, on the, what's called the feeling thermometer of um, feelings towards different racial groups. <clears throat> they scored the same on the feeling thermometer as as as, um, as voters who didn't vote for Trump. So, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, they're 
probably racist, but they're probably no more racist than the average white person um, mm -hmm. and Democrats. Mm -hmm. White people are racist. Um, um, and so the, the challenge really is not to take an average and say people who are uh, on average, people who score high in the risk racial resentment scale tended to vote for Trump, tended to vote for Trump. Yes, they did. That's what he, they were listening to what he was saying. But to peel off that 20% of voters who are very liberal economically um, and for whom racism is not central to their identity and explain to them, yeah, you have gotten screwed, but you don't need to turn to Trump to, to understand why you've gotten screwed and to have a commitment to change that. You've gotten screwed again, not because you're white, but because you're working class. Working class people of color, of course, have gotten screwed even worse. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I want to go back to something that you said a minute ago, which is that um, effectively, I mean, let's call it what it is, right? The Democrats in the United States have sort of lost the um, or missed the bus here when it comes to appealing to people that are perceiving themselves at the very least to be in economic distress, um, which is another factor that makes this whole analysis a little bit more complicated. I think it's factually correct that there is a sizable group of Americans that has experienced economic distress objectively. There is a strong overlap with how these people react um, in their voting, but there's also a lot of voters um, that just perceive themselves to to be at risk economically, although that may not be the case objectively. Yeah, I mean, extent. a lot of, I mean, again, this gets kind of wonky, but right. a lot of the other measures of economics to say this is not about economics, it's about, um, it's about race, um, have to do with whether you have been personally unemployed recently. Right. Now, there's a large literature in political science saying that economics plays an incredibly important role in how people vote, but it's not your individual right. situa uh, economic situation. It's this, um, it's what, how you think the country is doing. Mm -hmm. And these folks think the country is doing really poorly for, for a really simple reason. For them, for non-college grads, the country is doing really poorly. Now it's always done poorly for poor people and it continues to do worse and worse for poor people. But um, it used to do well for people in um, middle, the middle class. Mm. And now those people are becoming more and more economically fragile. Mm. I mean, one of the crazy things for Democrats is that even college grads who are not hyper wealthy are becoming more and more economically fragile. Right. They can't buy a house in San Francisco. Many college grads can. They mm. can't buy a house in a lot of areas of the country. And of course, that's the key wealth builder in the United States. So Democrats should be tapping the economic angers of college grads who don't work for Goldman Sachs and marrying them to the economic angers of people in the middle who feel that they have lost middle class status for a very simple reason. Their middle class status is very fragile if it's not already lost. Mm. Yeah. So why has that been so difficult for Democrats to do in the last um, 10 years? Um, I think this goes to, uh, first of all, I think there's a lot of anxiety that if you focus on economic issues, you're going to go back to centering white voters and pushing the concerns of people of color to the side. Mm. Um, and that, of course, is something the Democrats have done far too often. 
And it uh, certainly people who are in the working group that I've created, like Ian Haney Lopez, have explained why that's not inevitable. In fact, what you do is you forge an interracial coalition around giving everybody who works hard a stable middle-class future, black, white, or brown, hmm. and, and crying out, calling out the kind of the fat cats who are trying to keep us fighting among each other. But the other reason is the even more sobering reason. I mean, the first reason of like fear that we'll forget about racism, that's a very serious, a very serious risk and possibility in the U.S. Race is usually at the center of whatever you're doing. And it's at the center of this too. Um, but I think there's another um, element here, which is a little more, uh, I don't even know how to characterize it, but, which says that college-educated Americans have had their concerns at the center of the Democratic Party since the 1970s, whether it's environmentalism or it's LGBTQ rights or it's abortion rights. All of those issues make this, uh, are, are, have really high salience and priority for college grads. Mm -hmm. And that's because college grads are, have a pretty stable economic future. They're, they're concerned not about the end of the month. They're concerned about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. That's why they're so focused on climate change. I mean, um, whereas non-college grads often are more focused on the end of the month. I mean, um, the end of the world versus the end of the month was literally something that came strongly out of the yellow vest movement in France. But it's equally true. I mean, one of the things that was very shocking about 2020 was the sharp shift of Latinx community in right. Southern Texas to Republicans. And there are a number of reasons for that, but these culture war reasons are central, um, a central role all the way from climate change um, to border security to abortion. Um, although from what I hear, the economic issues were really front and center in that shift of, of uh, Latinos in Southern Texas to um, the far right. And the reason that's important is because, you know, there are some Latinos, Latinos are very heterogeneous. So Democrats are never going to get Cubans. That just ain't going to happen. But these are people whose origins in Southern Texas, these are people whose origins are in Mexico. And if the Democrats start to lose that demographic, it's not a pretty picture for Democrats. Right. So if you argue mainly that the avenue for Democrats would be to focus much more on the economic issues that, let's call it middle class, or let's just call it non-college grads uh, in the United States are facing. What would that look like in practice? I mean, obviously, you don't have to like now, you know, create some sort of economic policy program, but just in, in a, as, as a big picture uh, move, like what would that entail? Um, first of all, they need to talk about it mm -hmm. Okay. Um, rather than focusing on um, the culture war issues that are very cherished by me and my crowd, right. um, all the way from abortion. Well, abortion rights is now complicated, um, mm -hmm. but um, these other culture war issues are the way, and there's, as you probably know, in political science, there's a big literature on how basically um, business elites, capitalist elites, whatever you want to call them, very consciously deploy 
culture, cultural issues as a way of building an alliance with non with working class voters. Um, mm -hmm. And then they deliver, at least rhetorically, for those non-college voters, they deliver them social honor by identifying with their cultural values, which um, are traditionally more traditional mm -hmm. than elite's values are. Um, and they often deliver for them on the ground as they did with the overruling of Roe v. Wade. One of the things that Roe v. Wade, that, that Dobbs, though, the, the case that overruled Roe v. Wade has shown is that you always hear abortion polling is, depends on how you ask the question. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more to it than that. I mean, most Americans, overwhelming majority of Americans support abortion rights up to about 12 or 15 weeks. And then the proportion that supports abortion rights in late pregnancy is much, much lower. And it used to be that the left was out of sync with that center of gravity because they were like, trust women, get government out of women's lives, just um, let a trust women to make the right decisions, which of course is what I believe. I'm a white woman of a certain mm. age. And so that was out of sync with this bulk of people who believe that abortion, uh, you know, abortion, it, they really support abortion up to 12, 15, maybe 22 weeks. Now, though, the right has gone so far right that they're out of sync, that middle. So we may finally see, the, at least in that little vector, the culture wars finally begin to work for Democrats, at least right. for the next election. But I mean, what would this like, uh, what would my proposal um, look like on the ground if you think about, uh, I mean, my feeling has always been, uh, again, because I'm a caricature of a San Francisco liberal, I'm completely hysterical about the climate crisis. I think calling it the climate crisis and belittling people for not believing in science is a perfect way to ensure we do nothing to address the climate, climate crisis. I think saying this is the biggest infrastructure opportunity right. we've had in a couple of generations and that we are um, going to create a middle-class future for non-college Americans by giving them finally good blue-collar blue jobs that aren't wasting away and stopping the class insults and talking about jobs, jobs, jobs. Now, you know, in some ways that's what Biden is trying to do, but mm. I, you know, I go around in my social circles and everybody is talking about how stupid people don't believe in science. And even they don't even they don't even understand the implications of the climate crisis. And my attitude is like, you're just helping the other side. Right. I share 100 percent of your values. I think you're making it harder to realize the our shared values. Yeah, I think uh, that's. Definitely, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that's the best bet, right? To try to um, turn the U.S. climate response into an industrial policy, which I think um, a range of other political scientists, I think, have made extremely compelling arguments to that effect. And it looks like um, the the uh, Biden administration's response yes. is going to that direction. So that's yeah. very um, hopeful. That being said, I wanted to... Um, ask a little bit more abstract question that worries me personally about the uh, future tra trajectory of American politics, which is the following. 
you mentioned earlier that and you know there are different statistics on this that x percent of people born in 1980 will or will likely not be better off than their parents whereas in the past uh, the us has had periods of spectacular economic expansion where you know people were getting richer and richer and literally could essentially expect that they were going to be doing better than their parents 90 percent right what i'm worried about is the following what if the past is not a particularly great guide to the future, not necessarily because of the fault of anyone in particular, right? I think there are several reasons to believe that um, there is at minimum a growth uh, slowdown economically, which just means that uh, as a society, we're getting richer at a slower pace. That is obviously going to be much more dramatically impactful on certain groups rather than others. I don't necessarily want to go into the reasons why right now. There are other podcasts that I've done on this program on that question. Well, but... it helps if, you, if you've um, come out victorious from World War II and all the, all the other economies right. are shattered. <laughs> exactly, right? So that's going to be an important point. But, um, you know, also, you know, shifting um, an economy more and more towards services is going to necessarily imply that productivity cannot grow as fast if you're uh, previously have been producing widgets and automobiles and microwaves and whatnot, right? Productivity gains there are going to be much higher. So what I'm concerned about is what if the next 10, 20, 25 years, I don't think growth is over. I think that, um, you know, digital technologies and um, AI and whatnot may actually induce enormous increases in human welfare in, in the future. But let's say it takes 20 years. Let's say that, um, you know, if uh, events like uh, COVID-19 and um, adjacent supply chain disruptions continue, and if you have to um, switch more and more aggressively towards other energy carriers, i.e. solar and wind, that may ultimately uh, end up being more expensive than you hope right now, which ultimately reduce the amount of economic growth that you can really sustain. What does that really mean, right, for, for US politics? When I, um, like my big fear is ultimately that, yes, you can try to redistribute a little bit more evenly, but you may, if you're unlucky, um, live through a period that is just where, where it's just not realistic to assume that you're going to be doing much better than your parents did. I mean, like, I have a really short answer to this, mm. um, which is to look at the at who has benefited from the productivity gains mm -hmm. in recent decades. Mm -hmm. It's a group smaller than the one percent. Mm -hmm. They have basically pocketed the productivity gains. Right. And people in the middle um, haven't gotten their fair share of productivity gains. That's why they're angry. <laughs> I mean, we've seen this wild, this wild increase in wealth at the tippy, tippy, tippy top. Now, the reason that the political opportunity here is that um, those wild, that wild increase in wealth at the tippy, tippy, tippy top, as is only too apparent here in San Francisco, has led this tiny sliver, for example, to um, buy up the housing mm -hmm. and bid up the rest so that even middle-class college grads are getting screwed economically. Mm -hmm. And so there, there should be an opportunity, and it's not rocket science, 
to say to a broad band of Americans, college grads and non-college grads alike, of like, these people are getting too much and we're getting too little. That's why our grandparents had stable middle-class wives and we don't. And it's going to end here. Uh, I mean, part of this also is that it's not just about income, although right. I have to talk about income inequality. Um, Jacob Hacker's the, the Great Risk Shift remains a very important and central book. It's that so many of the risks, the risk of illness, the risk of old age, that used to be borne by rich people and corporations are now, are now borne by middle class people which makes their, their middle-class status extraordinarily fragile. So even if you know, your income is um, above $50,000, but your, uh, what is percentage of Americans who would be wiped out by a $400 expense mm. or an unexpected expense, people, people are smart. Even if they haven't gone to college, they're smart and they understand that they're getting screwed. Um, and Trump puts that at the center. Now, even if you think about even stop the steal, which seems to have nothing to do with this, if you think about that phrase, stop the steal, people feel their future and what's rightfully theirs has been stolen. Mm. And yeah, it's true. Their economic future has been stolen. That's what Ross Chetty's group has shown. You know, that that money, which is they should have been that those increases in productivity that they should have been participating in, they have not participated in. They do feel that they want to stop this deal. So instead of calling them stupid for being emotionally attracted to stop the steal, the, the move is to say, yeah, there has been a big steal here, but it's not the elections. It's your future. It's your stability. It's your entitlement as an American to a stable middle-class life. Yeah, I think that's really the key phrase. And I agree with um, what you said a minute ago, or I think that maybe something that is overlooked is really about stability much more than purchasing power or income, right? I think it's yeah. a bit the security or not necessarily of the one job you're holding right now, but yeah. um, these sort of security or the, the calm that you can take in the fact that, oh yeah, well, even if I lose this job, I'm definitely going to find another one. Um, I'm going to be able to, uh, you know, pay my rent or um, have access to a um, accessible housing market. I am, as you say, right, I'm not going to necessarily be wiped out by um, medical debt or anything like that. Um, I'm going to be able to um, possibly send a few of my children to an affordable uh, higher education institution, things like that, right? It's not necessarily about purchasing power. It's not necessarily about your income. It's, it's much more about the security of your life right? and the, the calm that you can take in that. And I think um, even if it may be the case that incomes cannot rise uh, as much as they have in the past for you know, structural economic reasons, I think increasing security may be a lot more um, not necessarily straightforward, but possible at least. Um, and if you look at the, the ethnographies of mm -hmm. the working class, they're one of the key cultural differences between non-college and college Americans or whatever proxy you want to use is that, I mean, my crew, our focus is on self-development. Right. Because that's what we need. We need to be at the top of our game to get to the top of our professions, which is where our economic stability lies. Mm. 
But for people in the middle, um, their focus is on stability, mm. not self-development. Mm. That's what they feel gives them honor, the ability to create a stable life for their families. And that's exactly what they've been robbed of. That's why the working group I put together combines political scientists with ethnographers of the um, of the these fragile middle class with people who study Fox News. It's it's so difficult to distinguish here between when you consider the woes of uh, American politics. To what extent are they? you know, demand driven, which I think is mostly what we've um, been discussing right now, right? That there's large groups of voters that um, feel like they've been robbed of something and, you know, they're easily motivated to, to, to vote a certain way as a result. Um, but of course, there's an important supply element here, right? And we've touched on this in the beginning that it seems like the Democrats just... Um, weren't really focused on that group of voters enough, possibly took them for granted, maybe underestimated how important they were going to be. And, you know, Republicans were much more um, astute at um, uh, supplying a kind of political program that would appeal to these people. Do you feel like there are other supply side factors that are important here? Um, well, let me bracket that for a minute and say, I think that it's not just that Democrats haven't said the right things. Right. For example, you know, the, um, the, the recent, what is it called, stopping inflation bill? Mm -hmm. I mean, it frames in, uh, in climate change as new jobs. It basically introduces industrial policy. Mm -hmm. I think, though, that <clears throat> Democrats are really hobbled um, by what I call the class culture gap, mm -hmm. that college grads continue to condescend to people who don't agree with them, to not understand the difference between focus on self-development, focus on stability, and understand how the focus on development, self-development is an expression of their class privilege. Right. So to fault other people for being um, more risk averse and more focused on traditional institutions that anchor self-stability, that is class condescension. And I think there's this culture gap between elites and non-elites in the U.S. Um, that is, that is um, a monkey on Democrats' back. Mm. And that fixing American politics involves um, fixing that culture gap. It's not just a political issue. It's right. a culture problem. And that's really what drives the bridging the diploma divide initiative right i think that's actually a much more interesting point than i was than what i was trying to get at so thank you for that answer um so where can people find out more about the diploma divide and who might be interested in this and what would they get out of um, engaging with your initiative well i've um <clears throat> i worked a long time um uh, happily <laughs> at the rockefeller center in bellagio um, kind of ironic to be working on social class at the rockefeller center in bellagio but mm. um Reporters, number one, um, it will enable you uh, reporters to find new storylines and all the info they need to write the story and the experts that they need to talk to. So it's really designed for reporters. Um, it's designed for policymakers um, to help them gain insights into how to, to frame 
um, issues for broad public appeal. Um, but it's really designed for anyone to who wants to play a positive role in really stopping the hurtling of American society towards the far right by fixing this culture problem that's poisoning American politics and fixing the culture gap that Republicans, uh, uh, the far right is, not all Republicans, but the far right is, is weaponizing into support for the far right and at this point um, assaults on democracy. And what um, the, uh, the, the working group members are listed, but the core of the website right now is um, you can find, first of all, a lot of articles that we've all written. So that will give reporters more ideas as to similar or um, how to riff off those articles. But there are a series of um, roadmaps of mm. like how to build, um, this one is coming, how to build um, cross-class red state coalitions for climate change, um, how the far right, right weaponizes racism um, with, with counter strategies. Mm. Um, how the far right weaponizes masculine anxieties with counter strategies, what Americans actually believe about economic justice. Um, <clears throat> short answer, unfortunately, um, tax, uh, taxing, tax and redistribution has far lower support than labor market interventions to make everybody who works hard can gain a stable middle-class standard of living. Mm -hmm. These are there's a lot of really important academic research, and I have boiled it down into these um, roadmaps, each of which takes less than six minutes to read. Um, another one, for example, is talking across class. Mm -hmm. um, John Fetterman, you know, when he said in the um, the Senate campaign in New, is it Pennsylvania? I think it's Pennsylvania. He said, you know, uh, the, uh, um, the 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 rich TV doctor said. Um, do you know how much it costs to assemble a plate of crudite or something like that? And Fetterman said, you know, we call that a veggie platter. Mm. That's talking across class. But that's one of the only examples you can find where Democrats brought Republicans up short by mm. talking in a way that signaled they understood class condescension, they understood class differences, and they aligned with the working class. So um, these are just sh very short working papers that bring together, I mean, that's a bibliography of five, 500 sources, mm -hmm. but it's boiled down into working papers that take five, six minutes to read. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think everyone uh, should check it out. The website is called diplomadivide.org. And yes, uh, Professor Joan Williams, thank you so much for being part of the podcast again. I really appreciate it, Nicholas. Uh, best of luck. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback and if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you.